someone who I happen to be very familiar with, Dr. Thomas Bach, and he just so happens to be my PhD supervisor as well as the supervisor for one of our other co-hosts, Ava Maria. Dr. Thomas Bach is a reader in psychology at the University of Edinburgh, clinical research fellow in the Center for Clinical Brain Sciences, and a program director at Bilingualism Matters. He was also the Strand leader of Strand 6, which covered multilingualism, cognition, health, and well-being of the AHRC project, Multilingualism, Empowering Individuals, Transforming Societies. Born and raised in Poland, Dr. Bach was trained in medicine and worked clinically in neurology, neurosurgery, psychiatry, and psychotherapy in Germany, Switzerland, and the UK. His main scientific interests are the relationship between brain, language, and different presentations of dementia across the world. From 2010 to 2018, he was a president of the World Federation of Neurology Research Group on Aphasia, Dementia, and Cognitive Disorders. He has been teaching and conducting research across Europe and in Asia, South America, and Africa for many years. Over the last few years, his work has focused increasingly on cognitive effects of bilingualism and language learning across the lifespan in healthy aging, as well as in stroke and dementia, which is where I come in as a PhD student. He has spoken about this topic in press, radio, and TV interviews at Edinburgh Science Festival, Edinburgh Fringe, and many, many other public events, giving talks in seven languages. Dr. Bach particularly enjoys traveling and hill walking, and his worst addiction, so self-proclaimed, is to learning new languages. He speaks Polish, German, Spanish, and English on a daily basis, but has knowledge of an ever-increasing number of languages. Welcome, Dr. Bach. Well, thank you very much for the kind invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. So your background is very diverse, as we've just heard. Uh, Having studied medicine with experience in neurology and psychology, and now you're doing more research on languages, can you tell us about how your interest in linguistics and languages developed and how you ended up in this field where you are now? Well, I think I would need to start, so to say, with my childhood. I was always a very curious person, and I think this curiosity has never left me. I mean, if anything, I think it's getting worse this time rather than better. And uh, I had a dream as a child always to be kind of explorer and exploring things that are far and strange. And the kind of most obvious would have been different cultures and countries. Uh, But later also, maybe the kind of exploration of our mind, like a foreign continent. And in a way, languages have always been an important part of it, because if you go around the world, you are confronted by different languages. So for me, it was, I mean, it was not possible to think of a spirit of exploration without bringing languages in. But the second bit was that I grew up in a kind of, you know, I said, I'm a lost, you know, a lost case for bilingualism because my parents spoke different languages. My father was a Polish speaker, but spoke also perfect German. My mother was a German speaker originally who learned Polish. So I could have grown up easily being bilingual in Polish and German. But at that time, late 60s in Krakow, the idea was that having two languages would be kind of dangerous for a child. It might end up being you know, schizophrenic and not learning any language correctly and so on. 
So in a way, I was on the receiving end of the prejudices against bilingualism, which were very predominant even in relatively well-educated circles. So my, both my parents were doctors, so they asked, you know, they asked pediatricians, they asked psychologists, they asked speech and language therapists. So that was the, the general view at that time. And only much, much later, they had discovered that around the time where I was born in Krakow, Pille and Lambert in Montreal did first studies showing that, in fact, bilingualism, if anything, might have positive effects on the development of children. But it took a while until this message kind of uh, went around the world and, and reached Poland. Uh, so from this point of view, I always listened to German. My parents spoke German and they wanted me not to understand something. And that made me, of course, very curious. So I thought, no, knowing languages is quite useful because you can get to information which other people can hide from you, which is, in a way, paradoxically, became a motivation for me to learn languages. But I want to add one thing. So I cannot claim that languages were always kind of easy topic for me. And one language I particularly struggled with was always English. So I found it difficult in Poland. I found it difficult after I moved to Germany. And when I did my A-level, my uh, English teacher told me, you know, Buck, I give you one advice for life. Whatever you do, try to find yourself a job where you don't need any English. Here I am. With a job where you need English every single day. <laughs> well, exactly. So, <laughs> so in a way, so maybe it's, not, it's good not always to follow the advice of our teachers. So you are known not only to be very knowledgeable, but also very enthusiastic about languages, which I can personally confirm. So what are some of your favorite things or fun facts about languages? Well, I would say for me, languages, uh, I see languages, exploring languages really as a form of traveling. So as was, you know, as was mentioned, I love traveling. I always was dreaming about travels, maybe also because you know, it would be important to add. When I was growing up in Poland in the communist times, traveling abroad was very difficult. You needed permissions. I mean, you couldn't just say, oh, well, tomorrow I go there and there. And you could be refused a passport for several years in a row, and then you couldn't leave the country. So in a way, you know, traveling was really a kind of the expression of freedom. So it was intellectual curiosity, but it was also expression of freedom. And for me, learning languages is this kind of expression of freedom and exploration. So I see languages very much as a, as a way of traveling. And in some way, I would say that languages are even better than travel because you can only travel to countries that exist. But languages allow you to travel to countries and civilizations which are long gone. So we cannot go on holiday to the ancient Babylon or Egypt we cannot really go back on holiday to the world of Norse sagas, but we can learn the languages. So in a way, I would say it's really the most versatile and beautiful mode of travel because it can transport us not only in place, but also in time. This is so beautiful. So you know so many languages. And people have, have different preferences for the way they learn languages. To you, what are the most effective methods of learning a language? Well, I would say, I mean, firstly, I think it could be different from everybody. So I wouldn't say that, you know, people have to follow my way. I mean, firstly, I do like diversity. 
so I like different ways. I don't like learning everything the same way. But I would also say what is important for me is to use the language to acquire other knowledge. So, for instance, in Spanish, you have this expression, lengua vehicular. The language is a vehicle with which you get to learn new things. So, for instance, if I try to learn a new language, I will not only try to learn the grammatical structures and whatever the pronunciation, I would try to read books in that language about things that I'm interested in, ideally connected, for instance, to that country. So, let's say I love history. So when I started traveling to Brazil and got interested in Portuguese, and I would see the States probably my favorite language from the point of view of sound, I absolutely love the sound of Brazilian Portuguese, I bought myself an Historia do Brasil, a book where I could read about Brazilian history, but in Portuguese. So in this way, it was not only learning about the language, it was using the language to get somewhere with it. And that's also what I find when I learn about, you know, when I give talks in different languages. So it's important for me not to kind of to translate the same talk, but to try really to get there in the language that is involved and using all the opportunities of this language. So in a few weeks, I will have a talk in Polish. And although it's my first language, it's by far not the easiest for me to give talks in because I left with 17. I left Poland, so my, all my studies were, were abroad. And I want to speak to, about executive functions. And in Polish, in fact, there are three different terms which are used for executive functions. Funkcje zarządcze, funkcje wykonawcze i funkcje nadzorcze. And all of them, all of these three terms refer to different aspects of executive functions. So in this way, I would say Polish is probably more precise than English in explaining this. So I always try to look what is exactly the specific thing. It's not about giving the same talk in you know, different languages. It's about giving different talks. And that is something which I think, let's say, people with monolingual mindset often forget. They have this feeling that in a way it's like translating things from one language to the other. No, it's having completely different realities, parallel realities. It's le- let me bring a metaphor. So it's not like I have a picture, let's imagine a picture of a very colorful meadow. So it's not that I have this picture in blue, in green, in yellow, and so on. No, I have a picture of the meadow with different flowers and different colors. So every language is bringing this kind of own color, own flavor, rather than being just a translation. And that's why I really enjoy both reading and giving talks in different languages, because they are never really one-to-one translations. Yeah, that makes a little sense. And I do feel the same way as well when I try and talk about my research in French with my friends. I realize that actually some things are not really translatable in exactly the same way. And sometimes English is better and sometimes French is better to express what I really want to say about my research. Maybe I think because that's something which Brittany will can, you know, can also relate to because the project that we are doing together about memory where we are doing a study, or we are still continuing it, a study of autobiographical memory in bilinguals in different languages, how memories, are memories kind of language specific? Are they specific to how they were encoded, which language, how they are cued, and so on? And what we notice is that in English, you say, you know, the term memory, when you translate it into other languages, we have this kind of memory from your life. But in 
almost all European languages that we look at, there is a natural distinction, like we would say, in French between memoir and souvenir, in French, yeah. English, in Spanish between recuerdo y memoria, in German between gedächtnis and erinnerung, in Polish between wspomnienie i pamięć. So you have here things which translate extremely well from Spanish or from Portuguese and Spanish to Polish, but they don't translate into English. So here they mm-hmm. the odd one out, whereas all the other languages have exactly the same distinction. Yeah, so that's a very interesting point. And actually, talking about memory, your research, a lot of it is focusing on dementia. So in your interview with Raising Multilinguals, you said that it is advantageous to introduce a second language at a young age and another language at an older age to prevent an early onset of dementia. Since most young learners are using their computers to learn because of COVID, especially lately over the last two years, do you think that language learning is now more or less or equally as effective as it was before with the previous techniques that were less digital? Well, I would say differently so. I mean, we all had enormously steep learning curve over the last few years with the COVID. And for me, the kind of the crucial bit is not to perceive what we were doing as just some kind of inferior replacement to what we were doing before, but see the opportunities that it offers. So in a way, and that is not something that I kind of, I thought about. It's something which kind of evolved through the work. And I think that's probably something that Brittany would be the best person to tell about because we had an experience where basically we planned really well a study, but then something came in between. Yes, and that something was a pandemic. (laughs) So we had planned a really fun study where we were having participants learn Chinese, Mandarin Chinese. And what we were doing was quite unique, actually, in that we were having people learn the character system and the spoken language entirely separately. So they would have one period of time whereby they were working in a classroom and they were learning the character system. And then another group of people would be learning the spoken language. And then they'd have a little break and then switch into the other class. So this sort of Study design is called a randomized crossover trial. It's something that's used often in medicine, but we were applying it here uh, to language learning. So it just so happened in the first round of our classes that in this break period was March of 2020, (laughs) which was the lockdown and pandemic in the UK, at least. That's when, when the lockdown started. So what we did was we then took this two week break, which we already had naturally designed into our project and into the course and worked with the teachers to move both the research and the delivery of the course online. And what we found in doing so is that the students, so we then ran two other rounds of the class fully online because of course the pandemic continued. And what we found was that for the people who started out online, had the expectation in the beginning, I'm going to be learning online, they were much more satisfied with their learning experience in the course than those who did not have the expectation in the beginning. So those who started off in person and then were forced online due to the pandemic. Another metaphor uh, that we could use here is if you're going on holiday and you think you're going to a beach holiday and then you end up in the mountains, 
That's not what you're looking for. It might be a little disappointing. It's not to say that the mountain holiday is any worse than the beach holiday. It's just not what you were expecting. Whereas if you go on holiday and you know you're going on a mountain journey and you're going to have some time in the snow, and, you know, in some beautiful landscapes and, and nature, it's going to be even more exciting and you're going to be more satisfied with it because your expectations are set and they're matched. So I would say that what we found is not so much equally or less or more effective. It's just different. And the expectations need to be that this is going to be different. But in particular, with online language learning, we have a really important variable that we found in our research, which is the social element. So if you're learning independently, say on uh, like a language learning app, you're not going to have the social interaction with classmates, which can be a really big benefit for many people and one of the main draws of language learning experiences. Whereas if you're learning synchronously online, in an online class, maybe through Zoom or some other platform, you still get that social interaction that you would get in person in classes. So I think there's also just differences in what people want out of the language learning experience that's important to consider as well in this expectation setting in the beginning. That's really interesting. And so you say they they learned equally well than those who were who were moved online unexpectedly and those who were originally online. That's really cool though. Uh, I mean, that uh, that's positive in a way uh, yeah. in terms of like the actual end products, I guess, if you're the, if you want to call it that. We actually did take like we do have measures of actual attainment through some quizzes at the end of each course. And yes, there was not a difference in literal attainment in the course, whether or not they started off online or, or started off in person. I guess that's reassuring, though it's yeah. true that it is also very informative to see how expectations shape the learning experience because even though they might have learned equally well their experience might shape their likelihood in pursuing a similar kind of learning in the future um, exactly or not or pursuing to continue learning the language or yeah. where they might want to use it or any of those things yeah exactly i mean the question is whether the online experience is necessarily worse and I think that is some, I mean, you see, a lot has been spoken about, about, you know, the influence of COVID on our life and so on. And one of the kind of, I think, early ideas was that people who find it very difficult to adapt will be the extroverts, whereas introverts will find it easy, so to say, do things online and so on. I think personally that probably what might be a more important aspect is your openness to new experiences. So if, and here comes the metaphor that Brittany said about kind of different holidays. So in a way, if you are prepared not to see it just as replacement of something, and if it's a replacement, it will be bound to be inferior. If you see it as a different, a new, potentially interesting experience, then you might really enjoy it. It doesn't mean that we might not want to come one day back to real learning and, you know, as we discovered today through our meetings with Brittany, there are some things you cannot do easily online, like, for instance, share some delicious chocolate, which you know, is more, more difficult online. But I think, you know, you can then perceive it as something which adds a new dimension. And one of the things we found interesting is some people really liked, for instance, one fact where online uh, uh, teaching was in some way more exciting, namely having a class of people from all over the world 
So they were now learning, let's say, Chinese, but instead of doing it at the University of Sheffield, which we were doing before, where you have to come from Sheffield or immediate area so that you commute, you had people from Philippines to the U.S. One thing that I really enjoyed when we were doing actually with Brittany and Eva, the other co-host of the podcast, that we took uh, Gaelic lessons, Scottish Gaelic lessons last year. And what I really enjoyed from having it online compared to language learning classes in person, that I, to be fair, haven't had that since high school, but at the time, was that for all the moments when we would actually practice with each other, we could be in a separate room and therefore just be the two or three people talking with each other. And personally, I found that so much easier than turning towards your desk partner and having to speak in a room where everybody's speaking at the same time. So it's true that this was definitely one thing that I found really nice from doing language learning online, the ability to just isolate with the other learner compared to being in a big room. But I, I definitely guess, agree. Yes, there are definitely some advantages and disadvantages to both. It's just about seeing the advantages of each when you're having that kind of learning experience. And so we've been talking about this online learning experience and Did you find that uh, it was mostly younger people who were more able to adapt to this new kind of learning experience or was it also the case for late language learners or what what was the experience then for, for these late language learners? I would say for any ages. So one of the interesting things we found was that, in fact, uh, older people are not necessarily as anti-technology as we often assume, and they were very much making use and enjoying the opportunities uh, given by it. And that links to a kind of general strand of the work that, you know, I'm doing with Brittany, and that is of learning in older age. I mean, there is this kind of very brutal English proverb, you can't teach old dogs new tricks. And I have an ambition, and I hope Brittany is, so to say, helping me in that, to demolish this. Yes. Say prejudice, saying, yes, you can teach old dogs new tricks. Yes, Brittany, is there any actual, like, most common misconceptions about late language learning you'd like to debunk right now, right here, uh, at this very moment, based on your findings? Yeah, so I would say there's a couple. The first being, as Thomas mentioned with this proverb, old dogs can't learn new tricks. Absolutely not true. We can learn something new at any point in time, at any age. In fact, even people living with dementia are able to learn new things and new words and pick up different bits of language. And that's something of the work that we've been doing with Lingo Flamingo. So in a previous episode, we interviewed uh, Robbie Norville, who is now Dr. Robbie Norville. He has a PhD Viva, which is very exciting. Uh, Congratulations. Congrats to him. I believe that was episode four. Um, So Lingo Flamingo, we've done quite a lot of work with them. And then also more recently, we've been doing some work with the Open University, uh, where they were providing language classes for people working in care homes to provide those language learning experiences to people living with dementia during COVID, where you couldn't have, you know, additional Uh, like lingo flamingo tutors go into the to the care home and what we found universally is that regardless of age or your cognitive health learning is something that you can do and it's also something that can be enjoyable and another misconception i think about language learning in older age 
is that people only want to learn a language to use it for communication purposes. There are so many different motivations as to why someone might want to learn a language. Just interest, for fun, for a challenge even. Challenge is one of the most common, commonly reported motivations that we get from our older participants as to why they want to learn a language or they're going through these language learning classes. So really, I'd say any ageist-related conception is probably a misconception <laughs> in this case. And actually, we're talking about the uh, reasons to learn the language. I also asked similar questions to my participants when I was doing my autism research. Mm -hmm. And some of the responses actually I had never thought of. And there was a strong, it was several of them actually talked about the sensory aspect of the language. And so I had participants who just learned, um, I think one of them learned German because they liked the feeling of speaking in German. Like the way that you have to move your mouth and your tongue when speaking German is just something that they really enjoyed. And I had another one who became fluent, learned and became fluent in Japanese because they liked to hear the sounds of Japanese. Therefore, the best solution to hear sounds in Japanese whenever they wanted was just to become fluent in Japanese themselves, which was just really cool. And all of these are reasons that we never think about. So it's important to highlight them. Exactly. And you've mentioned care homes. And actually, yeah. we had a question from Marielle's mom, Marielle being one of the other persons working on the podcast. So thank you, Marielle's mom, for the question. So Marielle's mom is a care home administrator for elderly people with dementia and Alzheimer's. And she said that they had a few bilingual residents over the years and that they often reverted to their mother tongue whilst in conversation. Would you guys have any information to explain why some elderly bilingual people do that? Yes, we do. In fact, we have a study looking at this. So this is something that is commonly reported actually in multilingual groups. So in communities where there are many different languages. So there, theoretically, in terms of the scientific background, there are many reasons why this might be the case. So there are sort of two different hypotheses that might be, or theories that might be driving this. So one being that when you have dementia, that what you're going to go back to this is called language reversion when you return back to a first language, is the language that was learned first. So input first being the strongest. But then there's also another idea that actually maybe it's the most recent input that's the strongest. So you wouldn't revert best to your first language, but maybe your first language gets a little bit weaker and your additional languages are stronger. But it's most common that we've found in the research that we've been doing. So we've put out a big, big survey looking at exactly this, at the prevalence of different language-related changes in older age. And what we found is that often it's been reported that for people living with dementia or just people who are aging, when they're reporting to revert back to a first language or go back and use their first language, it can often be confounded by the fact that maybe they haven't taught their children their first language. So there's a feeling that they're using their first language more but if you don't know that language, you can't say for sure, actually, if they're using it well. So they could be using their first language, but just saying words like um, that thing, you know. And so just because they're not able to understand what they're saying, they're feeling like they're using their first language when actually it might be both or all languages have had a negative impact. And it's just they're going back to the first language for word searching rather than, you know, for pure communication purposes. But in general, 
there is as well, very common amongst multilingual people to language mix. You mix your languages in different sentences. Yes, I mean, everyone, I think both of you do this quite often, right? But you, you choose when you're going to do that. So you're not going to, you know, right now, um, perhaps Thomas isn't going to speak in Polish and English because he knows that both of us don't speak Polish right now. Um, but maybe he could throw in some French or some Spanish words because we both have a bit of knowledge of that and he, and he speaks that language. So there's the social element as well of mixing is something that's common and is not a negative thing inherently, but it's only really negative when the other person in the conversation isn't able to follow. Because I was wondering between populate like communities where everybody is multilingual, and so it wouldn't really matter if an elderly person would just start using one more than the other languages because everybody would understand them anyways, compared to maybe people who would be bilingual themselves but living in a mostly monolingual environment, for example, migrant to a new country. Do you see like is there actually any data? on these different groups, like people who just live multilingually every single day, just like everybody else in their community, or, I mean, not compared to people who are bilingual themselves, but the community around them is not. Do they age differently in terms of their language use? I mean, that's a very interesting question. And in fact, I mean, we are still on our way to understand it better, namely, the models of bilingualism have changed very much over the last 20 years. So about 20 years ago, the idea, or there was a kind of very static idea that, you know, you are the monolingual or bilingual or, or, you know, multilingual and so on. And that's how you are from relatively early age for the rest of your life. And there was little attention being paid to how the languages are used, how they change during lifetime and so on and so on. This has changed dramatically. So current models of bilingualism and cognition and so on include much more attention to things like language switching, the surrounding of language switching and so on. And in fact, it's much more complex than we ever thought because the point is not just whether your surrounding is multilingual, but also the number of shared languages. So you can be in an extremely multilingual place, let's say New York, where, you know, people will speak, you know, uh, 20 different languages, but you don't have other languages than English in common. Or you can be in a situation, let's say, like in Malta, where basically everybody speaks English and Maltese. So you then you share always, or let's say in Barcelona, where you have Catalan and Spanish and so on. So from this point of view, I think this is, you know, one of the many interesting open questions, how this different things come together. And here comes something which I find really fascinating. And that is that I feel that that cognitive science on sociolinguistics are now coming together. For a long time, they were really like on different continents with very little communication. I think it is becoming clearer and clearer that we cannot really understand the cognitive or even the neural basis of bilingualism in the brain without paying attention to the way how it is used in real life, and that is exactly the domain of sociolinguistics. So for me, the research of future will need to bring cognitive science and sociolinguistics together. Yeah, so speaking of bringing together these two different fields, similarly, in a lot of the work that Thomas and I have been doing, is in doing so, we bring together different methods. So a lot of the research that I've been doing for my PhD is using so-called mixed methods. So that means we take not only quantitative numbers-based research, 
but also the qualitative words, opinions-based research and bring them together to get a holistic picture. So in my opinion, I must admit I'm a bit biased towards this opinion, but that is the best way to answer any sort of research question because the world doesn't exist such that only we have numbers or only we have our opinions, but there, there's a bit of both. And that allows us to get more into not only the, the cognitive science side of things, but also the sociolinguistic side of things. And what we've learned, for example, going back to what we're talking about with the online learning experience is objectively or quantifiably, students may be learning the same, but their opinions and their experience are different. And that's just as important. And if we weren't doing a mixed methods approach, we wouldn't have captured that. I would just say that mixed methods are the best. So it's the best way to move forward with, with scientific inquiry, in my opinion, regardless of the field. I absolutely agree with that. I also did my PhD with mixed methods because even though my background is in neurosciences, so I approached the question of bilingualism, autism, social cognition in a very much, let's do MRIs kind of attitudes. Mm -hmm. um, in the end, I also collected loads of qualitative data and that was that just like entirely opened up new perspectives to my research and things that I had absolutely not even considered before. And clearly having this multidimensional mixed methods approach just enriched my own understanding and the, all the questions that I could ask on this one topic. So absolutely, I'm on board with you guys regarding the, the value of mixed methods research, even though it makes things so complicated when you actually do the research yourself. It does. And you have to be uh, to learn about so many different methods, but um, definitely is worth, worth it entirely. And I think it also encourages better research questions because you do have to learn about so many different methods. You now have so many different considerations in mind when you go about starting a new project and asking a new question. Um, it, it, it makes, I just genuinely do think that it makes better scientific discoveries to do such a mixed method sort of approach. To continue on with our questions, Dr. Box, so you have started a project called the Healthy Linguistic Diet. Can you tell us more about the idea behind it and what the objectives are? Oh, thank you very much for asking about because it's something, again, which is interesting for me because it brings together very different strands. So the idea came up when I met a colleague of mine from uh, UCL, from Institute of Education, University College London, Dina Mehmet Begovic, in Brussels. It was an event organized by European Commission and their kind of committee working on multilingualism. And then we discovered that although we come from completely different backgrounds, I mean, Dina works on education, on children, schools, and so on. And as you notice, I work more on the kind of later parts of life. We both independently developed this comparison, this metaphor between of, of diet. Now, in children, there is this idea of healthy diet for children that, you know, they should eat varied food and so on, and not always, you know, just hamburgers or, or pies or whatever. But diet is also crucially important for dementia. There is a lot of work on, you know, maintaining healthy diet in, in old age. And interestingly, in both cases, a lot of this is about variety, about diversity not about one single ingredient, but about having different. And that is, so to say, our, our, the background of the idea. So the idea is that 
basically linguistic diversity, being exposed to linguistic diversity and living in it is something very positive for human development at any stage from young age to very advanced age. And that means it's important because it means it's not just about learning one language and then you know it and so on. It is, so to say, the valuing of having different languages. And that's important because a lot of people feel, you know, alienated or threatened by the fact that people speak different languages with the idea, well, if I don't understand it, maybe they speak about me and whatever. Whereas we want to replace it with a kind of positive approach that, you know, it's great to listen to different languages. And one of the things I find interesting, so one was exactly that, you know, it came from this completely two different backgrounds, which were using the diet metaphor. But since then, some studies have really supported it. So there is a beautiful study by Judy Kroll, whom you might have interviewed or will interview later on, very, very important bilingual researcher from uh, US, who was comparing people who grew up in a multi and monolingual environment, although both groups didn't really speak much languages, but one of them was exposed to a variety of languages, and they found it easier, at least their brains, I mean, in imaging, found it easier, so to say, to distinguish different sound, so to say, distinctions in Finnish, a language which both groups were not exposed to. So from this point of view, I mean, the idea, the idea of linguistic, health linguistic diet is that it is healthy to have a whole range of languages, maybe some languages which we use for every day you know, life, which we are fluent, which maybe we can translate in, and so on and so on, but also have some languages that we maybe know just a little bit, or some languages that we just listen to, have an idea how they sound, although we don't even speak it. That's so to say any type of this is useful. And again, another reason why I think this is important is because there is this idea that the only goal to learn language is to basically become as fluent as a native speaker. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a very, very good approach. I mean, you wouldn't say that you will learn tennis playing only because you want to win Wimbledon. And you are doing, you know, you are doing jogging only because you want to win Olympics, or you are doing hill walking only because you want to climb Mount Everest. And the same with music. You wouldn't do, I want to learn piano because I want to perform, you know, in Carnegie Hall. Maybe some of us will, but probably most will not. So in a way, if you look at other skills, we are doing them and enjoying them, although we not necessarily reach the level of perfection. And I think this kind of idea that in language, things have value only if they are perfect, can be in fact very, very counterproductive. And that is also part of this idea of health linguistic diet, that in a way, this kind of and a healthy multilingual environment in which different languages can coexist and can be used to different levels of you know, frequency and, and proficiency, I would say is at the core of this. I absolutely love that idea that it's just worth it, just learning it for even just not perfectly. I absolutely love it. And that is very good for my knowledge of Spanish and Gaelic because they're far from perfect. In relation to this, during the Edinburgh French, you sometimes give talks with very provocative topics. For example, is monolingualism making us ill in 2017? 
Can you tell us more behind this particular idea? Well, th- thanks for asking. I mean, I have to say that the whole, the whole, so to say, program is called Cabaret of Dangerous Ideas. So in a way, we are encouraged very much to bring some provocative ideas. And that was one of the ideas that I brought. But I think there is something serious in this kind of jokey sounding title. And that is that very often monolinguism is perceived as being a default. So basically, the normal human brain is monolingual. The normal human being is monolingual. The normal society is monolingual. And then there are some kind of weirdos, which are called multilinguals. And, you know, they can be even, you know, doesn't have to be negative. They can be perceived as a kind of interesting weirdos to study. And, you know, maybe we can learn from it. But something kind of exotic. Now, if we look at the human civilization, basically, as long as we know it, so from the first records, there are very good reasons to believe that human language developed in multilingual surroundings. Practically, by far most hunter-gatherer communities or early agricultural communities that still exist on Earth, whether in, in Australia or Papua New Guinea and so on, are highly multilingual. And monolingualism is an exception which do occur, does occur, but only in special circumstances, maybe on isolated islands or in a kind of desert where there is very little communication with other groups. So the rule is clearly multilingualism, and that has been the rule for most of the human history, and it is still across most of the world. If you look to Africa, if you look to Asia, and so on. I mean, you know, I did a lot of work in India. And there, basically, you know, it's, a, it's absolutely normal to speak, you know, three, four languages. I remember I was giving once a talk about multilingualism in Africa in Entebbe at the meeting of the African Society for Neuroscience. And then the first question I got from a guy from Ghana was, well, say that's very interesting, but, you know, we come from Ghana and we all speak usually three to four languages. Is it much better when I speak five, six or seven? So that is basically, <laughs> that was the first question I got. So the baseline is set at three to four, and then, you know, uh, how much can we add? So from this point of view, I think this change in perspective, the change in default setting is important. Because instead of saying that multilingualism basically, uh, you know, is a protective factor against dementia and delays the onset by four years, we might as well say with absolutely equal justification that monolingualism is a risk factor for dementia and accelerates its occurrence by four years. So in a way, I would say we can say that simply monolingualism is a kind of risk factor. It's an intellectual correlate of sedentary life. Related to this, we have a previous episode where we interviewed Ellen Bialystok, who, of course, as you know, Um, is one of the pioneers in cognitive linguistics and has done a lot of research on bilingualism and dementia. And you have done similar studies, for example, in India, and you've alluded to a few of them just now. But can you tell us explicitly a bit more about your findings and why it's so interesting to you? Uh, Well, I mean, firstly, I would like to pay tribute to the work of Ellen. I think it has been absolutely crucial. And in fact, it has been inspiration for my own work. I think, you know, her 2007 study showing a delay in the presentation of dementia in bilinguals was absolutely a kind of seminal paper that, you know, you can really see the field before and after. I mean, it changed the whole way. I mean, it introduced the idea of seeing bilinguism as a factor in health. So really introduced a new dimension. 
Uh, however, I mean, the problem is that, you know, her study was based in Toronto, and I mean, there are great reasons of studying values in Toronto. Firstly, because it's an incredibly multilingual place, one of the most multilinguals I have seen on Earth. I mean, you you go for a walk there and you can't really walk, you know, longer than 100 meters down the road without hearing, you know, several languages. And also, because in Canada it's taken seriously, for instance, if you get into hospital, one of the first questions, apart from the address and name and, and birthday, will be which languages you speak, so that the, the information was taken. So there are many reasons which make Canada a very good country to study multilingualism. However, like in many other Western countries, like in UK, in US, and so on, very often you find an association between multilingualism and immigration. So a lot of people who are multilingual have immigrant background, either because they are immigrants themselves or because they might be second generation, so their parents came from different countries and so on. So that introduces another type of variable. So immigrants are not necessarily just a kind of random selection of people from their countries. You know, it is a selection effect. You need to be strong to decide to go away, to survive the whole journey, to adjust to the new country, settle there, and so on and so on. So it might not be a kind of typical selection. And that's why I thought it would be really interesting to replicate this study, but in a place where multilingualism, so to say, in situ, is, has been there for you know, uh, centuries, if not millennia. And of course, one of the ideal countries for that is India. So Hyderabad, where we did the study, is a place where, you know, which has been multilingual for hundreds of years, I mean, at least 500 years. And I was very fortunate to have met Suvarna Alladi, a brilliant and very influential Indian, well, cognitive neurologist in my time in Cambridge. So with her, we then started looking in Hyderabad at both dementia and stroke patients. And then we discovered the same four to four and a half years delay as in Toronto, but as I say, completely uninfluenced by immigration. So that means we could say that it's clearly not effective immigration, but also we found a much faster recovery in stroke. So in a way, I would say a kind of mirror image. So it's not only that you get your diseases later, but also you recover better if you get them, for instance, get a stroke. And there's one more important thing in India. We often associate in the Western world multilingualism with kind of, you know, good school education because you had your foreign languages at school and so on and so on. In India, you have millions of people who are multilingual. They might be, you know, speaking uh, fluently two, three languages and never went to school. They are illiterate. And in this group, the, the difference was even bigger, six and a half years. So that means that the effect that we found of bilingualism is not an effect of immigration. It's not an effect of schooling. And that is something which I find generally important. We won't really get much further in our understanding of bilingualism if we look only at one society, only at one linguistic environment. We had it a little bit, Beranger, uh, with your question about this kind of different multilingual, uh, monolingual surroundings. I think we need to see the whole world as a big lab and try to get data from as many as possible different surroundings because in every place you will find some confounding variables, but they will be different from place to place. So if we put it together, then we might really get further. 
And I started thinking about it in one of the interviews a while ago, a couple of years ago, when a journalist asked me, you know, is, do you think, you know, would there be one study where you could have a really big study and that would solve all the problems, you know, uh, immediately? I said, well, no, not really, because you will always have these things. I would say rather having a lot of different studies in different populations, in different environments, would be better to have one huge one, but only in one specific environment. I think that is a really perfect transition to the next question. What are some of the unanswered questions you would like to see addressed in future research in all of these many different studies run in different places instead of one big study in one place? Well, there are many. I think one of the reasons what I'm working in this field that I find it so fascinating is exactly because there are so many unanswered questions. I mean, in a way, I would say knowledge very often moves, so to say, not in a linear, but in a logarithmic fashion. So you have a phase where there is a lot of increasing knowledge and then the curve starts getting flatter and flatter and you get a little bit of extra information, but not that much. And I would say in bilingual research, we are still in a very steep part of the curve. So we are still learning a lot. Now, I would say there are for me at least three big types of questions which I find interesting. One of them is kind of very much practical medical, coming from medical background. If I think, you know, if something has protective effect and so on, I have to think in practical terms, what is the dose? So for instance, how much language do we need? Do we need to practice it or will it if we speak about learning languages, is it for how long, how often, which type of learning? And I think one of the big problems in the field is that a lot of studies try to jump to the kind of final stage where we want to find out, for instance, does language learning have, uh, have an effect on cognition without having this preliminary work looking what is the right dose and what is the right mode of application. You wouldn't do it in medication studies. You want first to find out what is the right dose, how much, how often, in which form do I have to take it as tablet or does it need to be, you know, an injection or whatever. And this is the stage we still need to do in language learning. So I think there is a lot of very, very practical questions which I find interesting. The second group of questions are more linguistic, and that is the question, for instance, of linguistic distance. Uh, how much difference does it make whether languages are similar or not? And that raises immediately the question, what does it mean similar? It's not a one, kind of only one-dimensional question. So you can have languages which are very similar in terms of, let's say, grammar and vocabulary, but not of pronunciation, vice versa. So a good example for me would be Iberian Peninsula, which is an area I'm quite familiar with. So let's say people would often say, well, uh, Spanish and Catalan are quite similar and Spanish and Basque are very different. That is correct in terms of their origin, their grammar, and their vocabulary. But in terms of their phonology, they are pretty different. On the other hand, Spanish and Basque are very different in terms of their origin, their vocabulary and clearly their grammar, but they are phonological similarities. In some way, I would say they are more phonologically similar than uh, Spanish and Catalan. So we would need to look at different aspects of linguistic relations, and that is 
quite a big, quite a big field. Adjusting or in addition uh, to it uh, is the question of written language, which is so to say very important. And then the third group is the kind of what we mentioned already, sociolinguistic questions about how we use the language and so on and so on. And the last thing I wanted to add to this is, once we've kind of satisfied our curiosity, there comes the question, how can we translate it into practicality? And here comes, so to say, all these things, can we translate it into education? Can we translate it into language policy? Can we translate it into the way how we, for instance, ask about languages in census? It's, I think it's very sad that, for instance, in UK, you are not allowed to speak more than one language in language census. You are only asked to name one single main language. And if you speak two or three or four, it doesn't matter. And what is the main language? I was trying to explain people, I mean, you know, if you ask someone who has several children, who is your main child? Is it your first or last or the one you like or you like least or the one who is best at school or the one who makes most problems? Difficult to say. That is the same. I mean, asking a multilingual person, what is your main language, is a wonderful example of a completely meaningless question which shows complete lack of understanding of the field. And unfortunately, that is the official policy of Office of National Statistics and National Records of Scotland, which basically insisted on having this one main language question. So there is a lot of work that needs to be done in raising awareness. And that's maybe the last thing I want to kind of mention. That's why a few years ago, I suggested a celebration of International Day of Multilingualism on 27th of March. And you can ask why 27th of March? This is the day engraved in the famous Rosetta Stone in British Library, which is probably one of the oldest multilingual documents, basically written in three languages, which helped a lot to decipher, so to say, old Egyptian. So in a way, I hope that this national, international day of multilingualism, 27th of March, can help us to do exactly a little bit of this awareness work that, you know, multilingualism is not some kind of weirdo thing, but is in fact has been the rule across human history, is still the rule across much of the world. And if there is one question you should not ask multilingual, it is what's your main language. I absolutely agree with that. And you, Brittany, what would be some of the unanswered questions that you'd like to address in your future research after the PhD? Oh, this is a loaded a question. question. <laughs> I know. Loaded question. I'm sorry, but I really want to know. Right. Well, I think a lot of what Thomas has said is a lot of what I've tried to look at in my PhD. For example, this question of what is the right delivery method or the right dosage, if you will, if you'd like to use that metaphor, you know, of medication, like how often should you be using a language or in what way should you be using it to get the biggest or the most benefit out of it cognitively? Um, but I think moving forward, that question is something that needs to be refined and also considered like what we were discussing earlier in a more mixed methods fashion. So I think the best way to answer that question is looking at not only what seems to 
produce a cognitive effect, but also what is enjoyable and pleasant for people to do. Because if you say, okay, sort of like exercise, this is the example I'm going to use. We all know exercise is good for us, but we don't all spend many hours a day exercising because we don't have time or it's sometimes not very fun. But if say you're going to say that learning a language is really good for you, if we don't have a clear idea of what is most enjoyable for different people or what is something that people actually want to spend their time doing, it's sort of a moot point. So I think not so much the questions that need to be asked, but the way that we go about answering these questions does need to be something that takes into consideration not only the objective experience of like, you know, is there a, a benefit cognitively of these language learning experiences, but also subjectively, how do people feel about that? Uh, so I know that doesn't necessarily answer your question, but that's what I'm going to say. <laughs> that's a great answer. Thank you so much to Dr. Bach for taking the time to join us today. We had a great time and learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners are just as fascinated by the topic as we are. If you would like to stay in touch with the podcast or learn more about the different studies and things that Dr. Bach mentioned, including the International Day of Multilingualism, you can look on our website as well as our social medias to get links for that. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and... Até logo. Do povo Annyeong.